0: We don't sit around and talk about that 05, that one very often and like how good it was. It's all about what you're going to do this year, what you're going to do next year. And then the second vintage is finished. We're talking about next year.
1: Welcome to the Fermenting Place podcast, the podcast which discusses wine and other drinks which are inextricably influenced by and emergent from the unique environmental and cultural circumstances of a particular place. Here, we take deep dives via casual conversation into the infinitely fascinating world of fermentative beverages. I'm your host, Daniel Honan. My guests for episode 23 of the Fermenting Place podcast are father and son wine growers Bruce and Chris Tyrrell of Tyrrell's Wines in the Hunter Valley. These two really need no introduction other than the fact that, well, in my experience and I'm sure many others, they are one of the most welcoming and engaging people to speak with, certainly on any wine-related project that I've ever worked on. Generous with their time and insight, and of course, the wine that their name appears on are some of the greatest wines ever made. In episode 23 of the Fermenting Place podcast, Bruce, Chris and I discuss the Rolling Stones, drought, rain, the weather... The provenance of great vineyards a family history of hunter winemaking sensing place and so much more don't forget if you dig what you hear consider exchanging a little value for value you can show your support for the show and help to ensure its long-term sustainability by becoming a patreon subscriber over at patreon.com forward slash honan daniel alternatively you can make a one-off donation via paypal by clicking on the icon link on the website That's at fermentingplace.com. Or if you want to join me in the future, download the Sphinx chat app, stack it with some sats. That's the smaller unit of a whole Bitcoin, which is divisible by 100 million and stream a few sats my way in less than an instant. You can join the Fermenting Place podcast tribe on the Sphinx chat app, where you can message and chat with other listeners of the pod. You can stream sats and ultimately exchange a little value for value in real time. Log on to FermentingPlace.com for more info on ways you can support the show and enable the sustainable production of quality ground-up, listener-led content creation. At the very least, do me a solid and click that subscribe follow button and like, share or leave a comment so that more and more people can grow their know about Fermenting Place. So, with intros and light shilling out of the way, please Listen, like, share, subscribe, and enjoy. Episode 23 of the Fermenting Place Podcast, featuring Bruce and Chris Tyrrell of Tyrrell's Wines.
2: How's that for a level? That's pretty good, actually. That sounds back all right coming back through the and you can hear yourself okay in the headphones?
1: That's awesome. He's okay. got a
0: great voice, doesn't he, Bruce?
1: Yeah. It's better than mine. Mine's a little bit tinny. That's why I put up the bass. Mine's, <laughs> Mine's a bit nasally. The yeah. All, all yeah. the broken
2: noses. <laughs> uh that's a family problem. Yeah. That's why I say on <laughs> <laughs>
0: I say both, which is confusing.
2: It's a lot easier to say it when you get a nose like mine.
0: Tomo always told me to um say semion because it sounds more expensive.
1: Yeah, true. But there's a certain niceness about that hunter um, demarcation that it's from the hunter, you know, semelon or shirah. Yeah. You know.
2: And if it's broken noses, the one that had the most damage done to it in the family is your mother. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Why? She doesn't drink semelon.
2: She she got dumped when the surf when she was about 13, 12 or 13. Oh. Walked up to a father who was a doctor who was cleaning fish at the time and he put the fish knife down, grabbed a nose and went, Oh no! Got it back in the place.
1: And it hasn't been the same since. No. no. Bloody hell! <laughs> Not for the car. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That was that was that was turning into. Uh, we're rolling, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I'm speaking with Bruce and Chris Tyrrell at uh, at Tyrrell's Vineyards out here in the Hunter Valley, and um. I wanted to get you guys on record because I think it's important. Um, you know, your, the history of Tyrrells in the in the valley, in the region, and its contribution to Australian wine is is second to none. So, I uh, I just wanted to have a chat with you guys about what this place means to you, and what the uh, what the the Tyrrells family history means to you, and and you know where it's been, where it's going, and all that sort of stuff. So. As I said to you off air, I don't have a hell of a lot of um, plans or formats in my, in my head but we'll just kind of riff and pull on threads as we go. So tell me anecdotes, tell me some stories, I'll ask questions and we'll, um, we'll end it when, it when it finishes. How <laughs> much time do we have when we run out of ball. <laughs> People can pause it and come back later on, it's no big deal. if It goes for a few hours. W- with my podcasts I like to work from Percolbin to Sydney, so two hours. Two hours is good. Yeah, all right, that's cool. That's I'm I'm pretty much the same.
2: I don't listen to podcasts, so I got a hoop of great old rock and roll.
1: Nice. <laughs> what uh what's what, what was the last thing that's in your CD player now?
2: Oh that's uh, well, it's on my, on my, all on my phone these days. Starts about nineteen fifty six and pretty much finishes about seventy two.
1: That's it, nothing beyond?
2: Oh no, there's stuff beyond, but the vast majority is in that. And era. a lot of the English stuff.
1: Right, right. English
2: bands at that time. Number one, the Rolling Stones. Um, and then go to America with Bob Dylan, that's the... Interesting. That's the... Stones
1: uh, over the Beatles then.
2: I was never a Beatles fan, oh, they are all wuzzers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit dinkier. <laughs> um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, it took me a while. I, I I went through the Beatles first, and and then discovered the Stones later on. Um, and I I kind of forget they they're a bit more gritty. Yeah. They've got a bit more edge. My
2: wife has a lot more. She's she's and other son John a mad Beatles fans. Yeah. But uh, I was like with a bit more grunt on it. Fair play,
1: fair play. <laughs> Sticky fingers. Yeah. Yeah yeah.
2: I don't know. High tide and green grass still the best Stones LP. All right, all right. I don't think I've heard that one, actually. It was the first one.
1: Ah, first Little one. Red Rooster.
2: Yeah. Right. All that stuff,
1: yeah. Yeah, cool. Chris, what kind of music are you listening to these days? I'm a bit lazy with music at the moment.
0: Right. I kind of just go back and revisit things.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, from I've back always, in the day. I've always loved
0: Queens of the Stone Age.
1: Mm. Always have. Yeah.
0: So, so, and then all those little albums that spin off that are Josh Hom related. Them Crooked Vultures. All that stuff. Yeah. yeah. yeah, I remember going to that concert. It was great. At the Horton Pavilion. With John Paul Jones on the bass, Yeah, right? correct.
1: Yeah, awesome. Wow. With... Uh, I think with Stuart Horton. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I was talking to him about Tool the other day. Um, Tool's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Paul McCartney's uh, latest album actually has a, has a track by Josh Homie on there. Mm. And uh, it's very, very... It, he's got a signature sound. There's no doubt. And just one of those guys just must be incredibly smart and talented. And yeah. well, you go I hate and hang those out people. In the desert for yeah. days on end, getting high and just writing music. That sounds pretty jolly good to me. I reckon we've got a pretty good job here. That's an excellent segue. Jeez, Chris. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't have to go
2: into the desert. Um.
1: That's it. That's it. Well, I mean, unless you count the last uh, few years.
2: Yeah, well, that's not the first time that's happened. That's true and enough. It's had plenty of those big droughts. You think of what well, you think between nineteen hundred 1900 and
1: nineteen ten,
2: uh-huh. the Murray River ran dry twice. Right. Massive droughts. Huh. Yeah. Then, uh, yeah, it's this sort of belief that droughts are, are something of the last five years. It's um, it's yeah, it it. Well, weather runs in cycles.
1: It's something that I'm starting to pick up on a little bit more as I do this job... ...is understanding or, or trying to reflect on what weather patterns are coming. So it took me a little while to figure out, oh, August, that's when the wind starts whipping across from the west. Yeah, <laughs> it's know, cold. And it starts, yeah. it's lazy. But then with this latest uh, La Nina event off the coast... ...I mean that would have been a similar sort of cycle that played out in what, 15, 16... And then it flipped El Nino t- mm. for 17, 18, 19, yeah. 20. So it's just interesting how these cycles do...
0: Yeah, and then um, the one I think about is the Pascha Volca weekend. Right, 07. Yeah. So it, I remember in 2007 we had vines that were dying because a lot of these vineyards here are dry... Well, 95% of our vineyards are dry grown. Mm-hmm. And then it rained for like 18 months, just non-stop. That's uh, right. And then... We've been revisiting some of the 2009 wines now because we're releasing uh, the Vat One Semi on a, a sort of a special release and thinking about that vintage and um, all that rain we had. Yeah. It's got me thinking 2022 is going to be pretty bloody good. You reckon? Yeah, well, yeah. It's, been, it's been raining non-stop. It's 20, since 2022,
2: by <laughs> well, 21, was a small crop because that crop was set in the vines at the end of 19, At uh-huh. the end of the drought um so next year's was actually set in mm. november last year when it was as wet as bugger.
0: So I think in the last That's right. um since february 20 yep i think we're up to mm. about 1250 mil mm. of rain Jeez. and the year before we had 340 yeah long term average 700 so
1: mm. it,
2: 20 was 20 calendar that. year was a bit over double 9-8. right
1: right as it started to shift mm. into this current phase
2: yeah. The other thing is, you know, our weather is controlled 98 percent by sunspots and phases of the moon. Uh-huh. And if the new moon comes in wet, it'll stay wet through that much on and off. You won't get a drought, but you'll get rain. If it comes in bone dry, you're going to have a dry month.
1: Andrew Pengilly did say you were dabbling with biodynamics.
2: No, that's just common sense. <laughs> like yeah, all the old blacks. Yeah, um, all the old blacks out in the bush. They run all of their things, always run off the face of the moon.
1: Yeah.
2: Old Bob Russell who was... Um, I remember the government knocked him... were going to knock him back for renewing his forklift licence when he was 78 because they said we'd got his birthday wrong we'll put the paper. It went, no, 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 no. But so he's going to work till he's 85. John Tullock, he worked till he was 85 and, uh, and old John ran off the phases of the moon. All his life. That's well, how he, how he ran his property. That's how all most sensible farmers run it.
1: It's one thing that I try and hammer on pretty heavily on this podcast... ...is, is to try and get across the concept that... ...wine is an agricultural product. Oh, yeah. And that you're fundamentally farmers. And it's a very... Um, it's ...it's a very glamorous, say, form of farming perhaps, you know, uh, because you value add, I guess, you make the wine as well and that's, that's almost what you have to do these days. It, and it's interesting um, seeing other industries not
0: follow wine's lead but taking a similar path. Like right. It's great going to restaurants and seeing the name of a beef farm. You know, we've got Little Hill Chicken here, mm-hmm. Jack's Creek Beef, um,
2: what the Bennies are doing with beef up here mm-hmm. just sensational they've just they were massive cattle supplies, still are all that high country up on the top of the valley right or this the side of the valley and um, they've now developed their own brand and they're working that and, and beautiful cattle
1: linking it back to the the sense of place and the provenance mm.
0: and even um you know when you're reading things about you know during covid we all did our sourdoughs and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's but that's true. Um, like people saying, that is the only flower I'll buy. That is the, from that farm, from that thing. Like, it's great.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the, the, And it, it comes through that and you use the word. does not get used enough because I don't think enough people really understand what provenance means. And at a wine show now, i, I never forget walking in the Hunter Valley Wine Show, the first year of Wine and Provenance Awards. Mm-hmm. And I said to people, I will give up everything today. To win that first wine of provenance, and they gave two, and we got both of them: vat one and vat nine. And I'm very glad Pauline got me out about half past six. It was about to get really <laughs> ugly.
1: <laughs> well, you guys have got a huge reputation for producing wines of provenance. That's, I guess, it's you've been working hard on 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 shifting to that kind of single site
2: mm.
1: wine. For yeah, a we sort of.
2: There was a bit of it came. Uh, in the earlier 80s, we started to label things like Belford Semelon. But for no reason, we labelled it Belford Semelon. You know, it was a HVD in 83. Right. Those, but we never, it was really until 93 vintage were the Stevens, the first vintage of Stevens Semelon. And that wine was so different and it was so good. I remember saying, Tom, i spin, if you blend this away, I will do unspeakable things to you. Um, because it was just so good and so different. And, and that's really where it started.
1: Is to try and identify those quality Well, sides.
2: yeah, and then it was... And then the penny dropped that, you know, we needed to go and... And it had sort of started back in the 80s when Spin and I had, I think, realised about the same time that we were amongst the luckiest people in the world because we were going to get to work with something that was truly unique and take it through. So, you know, that's was that thought, that conversation that got us to where we are today with Simulon. And and it was going out and getting our hands on the best bits of vineyard that we could. Um, and we now either own them or lease them, mm-hmm. pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't have minded getting a crack at Lovedale, but that's not going to happen yet.
0: <laughs> not as um, no, I said yet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, we had a good look at it, actually, but yeah, no, that was what it was all about. It was um, um, you know, getting these great vineyards that had a reason. It's all about having a reason to exist. Right. You know, if it tastes the same, if the HVD and the Belford and the Stevens and Buckalham Hills and whatever all tasted the same, there'd be no single vineyards because yeah. the fact that it's an individual piece of vineyard is irrelevant. It's got to have its own distinct flavour and character and style. It's it's to bottle it on its own. If it's the same as everything else, there's no point in it. No point.
0: Agree. And you see so many wines or a suite of wines from a producer and they just taste the same. uh uh-huh. yeah. And I always found that a little bit confusing, like just doing things for the sake of doing it. And I think in the Hunter, what you get, or what I see compared to some other regions, is that sense of place, sense of terroir, uniqueness in the wine styles changes so quickly. Mm. And I think Tyrrells is a good, you know, we get access to that due to, it's about 25 kilometres from one end to the other of the wines we make. And even the wines just on the estate, so four acres Shiraz, Jono Shiraz. They're like 600 metres away and mm-hmm. it's like they're grown on different parts of the world. Completely different. It's um, it's a pretty magical place and that's why we love it and that's why we're obsessed with
2: it. Changes. You know, you're, you're on this ridge where we're sitting now. It's fantastic red country. You go that way and it's only a few hundred metres and the bloody rabbits take a cut lunch over there. It's just porous. Know.
1: This is just next door here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just it's just the it's next ridge
2: over. It's It's terrible country.
1: And that's the thing about the hunter is that it, from the ground driving around, it looks like there's a vineyard on every corner and yet when you look at it up in high in the air, yeah. the air there's just there's, there's alive, patches of nothingness. Yeah. I mean, they're riding cattle or something like that instead because mm. they obviously deem that, that to be more profitable than the vineyards it's and the vineyards that country. do exist have proven their worth to be there.
2: I think the other bit, point. In, and history's a wonderful teacher. You can't live in it but you've got to learn the lessons from it is the vineyards that were still here in 67, 68, and it was down to less than a 1,000 acres in the valley, still the great vineyards, and it was the great vineyards that survived all of the hard times, the hard seasons, the hard economy. You know, Australia between the two wars was not a terribly profitable place. and And also wine was not considered to be a premium beverage, apart from a very few people. I had a girlfriend from Inverell in the early 70s. Dad was a farmer and he was not keen about his daughter going out with someone from the wine industry because it was a disreputable industry. Drunkards. Yeah, a bunch of drunkards. I suppose Mm. he looked around at those of us that were in it. He was probably right. (laughs) But, yeah, our image then was was pretty light.
1: Which which has clearly changed, but, I mean... The beautiful thing, and for people that are, uh, aren't aware, Tyrrells were the first to plant grapevines in this particular location in, in Um <laughs> by, by Edward Tyrrell. And, uh, and and then it was what followed by, I think, Drayton's and then Audrey Wilkinson after that. But th- we're talking 1858 when he bought hmm. 320 when acres or thereabouts.
2: Here, we didn't actually buy it then. Right. It was what was called a concessional allotment. You could get, you could get a land grant. If you got a land grant, it was normally bigger, not that far out here, between here and the Belford Vineyard. Um, Major Jones got caught got no sorry he got twenty five thousand acre hmm. land grant. But if you got a land grant, it was normally big, and you got convicts. Uh huh. So you had the labour trade to work it. All you had to do was feed them and house them. Right. Um, and, you, know, you had free labour, basically. If you got a concessional allotment, the maximum you could get was 320 acres, which is the original block, uh-huh. and you had to develop it, build a house on it, fence it, and then at some stage in the future you paid it off, but it was at a pretty cheap price. Uh, great-grandfather paid this off in 1905. Huh. So he strung the government out pretty well. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's how it started and then they bought across the road. Um, the thing
1: I love um, I think most about that story is you could have uh, been allocated anywhere mm. really and and yet you're allocated this plot of land which has proven itself over time to be arguably some <laughs> of the best red and white country in Australia. And had, if had not we the world. arrived
2: here... Great grandfather had got into the wine industry. Uh, had he arrived in the 1840s, we wouldn't be sitting here now because he would have been over closer to Lockenbach and, and Maitland, where there was a lot of vineyard. Mm. Uh, you know, there's more vineyard in this area in 1900 than there is today. Mm-hmm. Um, we'd have been over there, and it was all lousy country, and they all went out of business during the war and the Great Depression.
0: It's amazing that it? I think about that, and we've spoken about that before. Mm. That uh, if you'd been over near the river, or this was one of the last spots, and um, you know, timing is everything. Bit of luck along the way, sure. Um, and here we are, and it's something you know I think about. I'm sure Dad thinks about. Mm. You know, when you're you're walking through the cellar, you know, at night, locking up, or on on the weekend during vintage, or you know, in the vineyards, that's the history is all around you, and you just you sort of can't complain. They would have, you know, they only got
1: electricity in the. The 50s, 50s, you know. Yeah, like that's right. Sort of, it's pretty easy in that regard. So. <laughs> I think my grandfather helped uh, connect some of that stuff actually in the yeah. 50s, 56.
2: Road got tarred to the front gate in 1969.
1: So it's 100 years since he rocked up here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean this is the thing. So right out the side here we've got four and eight acres, which are the original plantings, right? And they're still here
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they're still producing. Half of them are still here. <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> yeah, four just pulled every second row out.
0: Um, in in the age we live in of um, close planted vines and, right. and whatnot, um, it was incredibly practical. When we bought our first tractor, it didn't fit, so they ripped didn't out fit every out second the row. <laughs> <laughs> the horse fit just fine,
2: not the tractor. And the terror I remember getting flogged by Uncle Dan uh, was being taught to use a cut off plough. Oh, yeah. Behind the horse,
1: silly plough type thing, yeah.
2: Yeah, uh, but yeah, you pulled it in and out. Like yep. you, were, you were walking along behind it. Right. And you pulled it out and pushed it in. Gosh. And I cut a couple of vines off, and the old fella gave me a hell of a flogging. Those vines were much more valuable than I was. <laughs> <laughs> so I gave it away till I got a bit older. Uh, bit well, no no a bit more
0: practice. There's no flogging stronger.
1: these days, but um, they are still very important. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about these two. These two two sites. Why four and eight acres? And apparently they're not even four and eight acres.
2: No, the the four acres is, what, 1.8 acres and the eight acres is 2.4 acres. Beautiful. So it adds up to four acres all up. I have no idea. They have all of my life been called that. Mm -hmm. Um, Why they were called it, I think, is lost in the mist of time.
0: I always find it amazing. Like, I think we're pretty good at growing grapes and I think we're pretty good at... The whole making wine thing, and we've done all right out of that. Whoever was in charge of naming the block, though, was fucking useless. <laughs> so I don't, I don't, I've never understood that. Long short,
2: flat. Short,
0: well, long flat was flat. the really small vineyard. Short flat was the really big one. The four, the eight, there's well, just. Short
2: flat wasn't that big. <laughs> like we planted. At least much. they're
1: both flat, though, right?
2: Well, short flat's not that flat. It sort of comes down <laughs> off the road.
1: There's a site called Contour on short yeah. flat.
2: <laughs> yeah, that was planted in the early sixties. I remember that Johnny Scott driving steel posts in with a twelve-pound hammer, and uh, he forgot to take his thumb off the top of the top of the post, and I learnt to swear that day. Yeah, right. He uh, hit himself with a hammer. Jesus, man! Um, but yeah, a lot of the flat there was there was only it wasn't that big, mm. and. Uh, and a chunk of it was probably quarter of that was table grapes that they would have made into musket, would mm-hmm. have made into fortified one. Right. And I suppose the long flat was long and skinny. <laughs> um, God knows, that's what they call it. Why not? NVC, you know, New Vineyard Cuttings, planted in 1921.
1: <laughs> Gets a
0: letter from the Queen this year. Yeah. Does it? It yeah, does. Yeah, underneath, yeah. yeah. Wow.
2: Outlive Philip. Um, God knows why they call them that. That I don't
1: know. No idea. Do you do you have any hint or a hunch why Edward would have planted where he where he did here on this particular site? Convenience, uh, probably
2: that hill. Yeah, it's close. Prior knowledge. Something? Um, he wouldn't. See, he wouldn't have had a lot of knowledge because he he was the son of an eye surgeon in London. Hmm. So there's no way they had a house out in Kent, weekender, for want of a better word. Um, he came out here as a teenager. He's lived a pretty privileged life. Yeah. His father, grandfather and great-grandfather were all eye surgeons. Um, and they did pretty well. And his father died. Mm-hmm. He was young. His mother remarried if she had to, to survive. And... Um, The eldest son got everything and the rest of them, it was normally the second one went into the church and the third one went into the army. And any after that was they were on their own.
1: Slim Pickens.
2: Yeah, so he came out here with his elder brother um, really into the care of their uncle who was the bishop, Newcastle. Mm -hmm. And the elder brother um, um, came out as, it's a lovely term, as a candidate for orders. So as soon as he lobbed here, his uncle whacked the white collar on him, hmm. and uh, and he built Uncle Lovick. Basically, built St. Peter's, the cathedral on the hill of East Medlar, little cathedral. Really? Yeah. Wow. So huh. great grandfather just sort of wandered around for two or three years, um, and then he he picked this up. And most of the farming around would have been mixed farming. Right. Yeah. Firstly, they had to feed themselves. Yep. ...off the property. You know, there was no Woolworths drive-through. Um, and the dray probably wouldn't have fitted anyhow. Um, <laughs> um, so they had to do that. And then there was there were grapes around. There had been grapes here for 30, 30 years. Um, so it was part of the... We've got a letter he's written back to his mother. Somewhere I've got it at the home. Not knowing what... and Could she send him some money? Because... Dr Lindemann hadn't paid him from the previous year (laughs) and he needed to buy fertiliser and sulphur, he'd run out of sulphur to spray with and those sort of things. So I often think about him, you know, uh, huge dislocation Mm. life, going from a privileged life in London to being dumped in the middle of the hot scrub here.
0: And you've seen the hut outside, Mm -hmm. not exactly
1: um, the Four Seasons. It's not too palatial. No. I mean, it's it's got its ch- it's cozy. I think they put it on real estate blurbs. <laughs> <laughs> Fixer upper, yeah. yeah, close to schools and shops. Um, but he, you know, planted this site, and as, as as you were saying, like it it just happens to be arguably one of the best shara sites,
2: I think, in the world. Marks like, and um, and I think also probably the quality of cuttings, right. Um, you know, we're pretty sure that, well, they're Busby cuttings. You know, Gus Busby bought everything out in bundles of 20 and bundles of five. Mm-hmm. The bundles of 20 went to the government. The bundles of five went to his father. Uh, and his brother-in-law out at um, Belfort, or oh. out on the river. Um, and two of his nephews married two of my great-aunts. So mm-hmm. the families were obviously connected
1: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, we probably get a, a good crack at the better cuttings Now, John Beeston always told me that his research was that we, we're certain this is all hill of hermitage thing, but that these, the four acres, is um, is La Chapelle. Now, I have no idea whether that's true or not. Right. It's a bloody good street, but, you know, Beeston... Did his research and did all of that, and he was he was adamant that that was the case. So we're probably also lucky that we got really good vine, quality vine material to start
0: with. That helps. And I always like thinking about there would have been other blocks. There would have, you see photos of Uncle Dan and in vineyards that aren't there now. But it's like that saying always goes: great old vineyards would have been great young vineyards, mm-hmm. and I'm sure they wouldn't have just left it there because it looked good. That's right. Like It would have been making one of their favourite lines from early on so that it stays.
1: That's it, yeah.
0: Whereas I often ask about this side of the hill on the eastern side and you think, oh, it's eastern facing slope, it's next to four acres, should be great. And then Bruce and other vineyard workers that have been here over the years have said, no, nah, it's no good, it's terrible. That's so close. But I'm sure at the point in time there would have been something there.
2: And you go down to about the contour bank here, mm. and above that's all right. Once you get below it, it's different soil.
0: Different country.
2: So it would have
0: yeah. been... Just really good from the early days, which is why they would have kept it.
1: Yeah, makes so sense, I- right? Trial and error, and eventually over time, we've uh, refined it to the point where
2: well, the old hut out the front here. It, hmm. um, and this may be a varietal thing, because it normally happens here. That was all planted to Malbec. What's now the old hut? That was all Malbec, but after about twenty odd years, it basically died out. Audrey Wilkinson had uh, had a Malbec. We used to buy it actually. All oh, right. Uh, back in the, in the 80s, they had Malbec and the same thing happened. At 20, about 20 years old, it all died out.
0: Well, just in this photo here, that is obviously the old hut vineyard as we know it today. Mm. But when I grew up, there was no vineyard there. No vineyard and there. that's clearly mm. that same spot.
1: So that's a shot of Uncle Dan.
0: And he's got a bit of rope for a belt. Yeah. And those vines look pretty old, don't they? That's
1: an amazing photograph. Mm. Um,
0: but that, um, my whole life there was no vineyard there until the early 2000s.
2: Funny a bit of that, Uncle Dan's there pruning. The story from my grandfather, and he died, I was pretty young, and he used to say that when Uncle Dan had finished, they'd all go home and he'd go back and he'd re-prune the rose that Uncle Dan had pruned because he reckon Dan couldn't prune. He <laughs> <laughs>
0: could make wine, though. could make wine. could yeah, make
2: wine. And funnily enough, one of his great reputations was as fortified maker. Mm-hmm. original was not so much a table one, but it was fortified, And just good maker,
0: I think. And before we um, turned on the mics, we were talking about Dan and O'Shea mm-hmm. and the Four Acres and, and all those things, and the history you know, lives on. And you see those old Mount Pleasant lines. There was T.Y. Hermitage, which was Tyrrell's, and there was Richard, which was arguably... Well, we're, we're told by Scott McQueen and I'm a few of the family that, that was... Acres and um,
2: two, four acres. And oh,
0: wow. Bruce's uncle, I, he's not with us anymore, but I used to speak to him about O'Shea because when you get into wine, there's the legends and all this sort of stuff. And, of course, and uh, and he, he, his job was on the horse and cart, riding the wine around to, to Mount Pleasant to be bottled. So, a lot of our wine up until really your father came on, well, my grandfather was sold as bulk or sold to, to merchants in Sydney,
2: um, which is the way the market worked. Mm. Yeah, there mm. were when I started out in the road in the early 70s. Bottle shops were a really new thing. There were wine merchants Mm -hmm. and there were pubs. And uh, I remember Don McWilliam telling me if he wanted a price rise for his fortifieds, he had to go to the AHA to to get permission to have a price rise.
1: The Australian Hoteliers association. Association. So
2: you were asking your customers, you know, for a price rise, and if they said no, then that was it. Um, so then sold to the to the merchants of the time, which you know, O'Shea was largely. Uh-huh. Um, but Ryan Castle and a whole heap of them.
0: And Caldwell was the other one. Caldwell, wasn't it? yeah, they yeah. were
2: based up at Singleton. Right. Um. Um. And there, there were a lot of them. Oh, you know, there were probably um, like old Beric Seagan in in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, Seabrooks, that's what they did. They bought from the winery, often in bulk, mm. and they stored it, and then they bottled it and sold it. And old Doug Lamb,
1: mm-hmm.
2: remember old Doug Lamb was selling Coonawarra Cabernet, and it was actually an unnamed variety from Spain. Mm.
0: Um, and I've <laughs> had some of those um, Seabrook ones from Melbourne that are or Wenderee, AP Burke sellers, yeah. and um, which is why we don't have a
1: lot of like ultra museum mm. stock. I was going to ask, like do in you normal. have any of the old fortifieds? I mean... We've still know, got some in barrel. You, like from from back from, with from Dan's day? So when Spinner
0: started in 1980, uh, he reckons that there was the there was the old and the very, very old, which we still hear
1: now. You aren't very good at naming things,
0: are you? No, OAS, <laughs> old age Sherry, and V, OAS, very old age Sherry. Excellent. Other stickers. Um, and I remember when I was filtering them when I was a bit younger, uh, asking how old they were, and Spinner always thought, well... That's the 50 year old when I started, and that was in 1980. Gee whiz. Mm.
2: So, um. Nobody knew?
0: Yeah, but so we don't have much old stock in our museums. We never have. In I've had a few bottles of Cordwells with mum and dad before, but that's about and it. And the other
2: thing is Dan had everything in his head. He never right. wrote anything down, he remembered yeah, everything. Okay.
0: And, and it wasn't the, the culture, and we didn't. Keep I guess it. there's no incentive well, to no, do they so. probably needed the money to sell yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. Um, so there was no need to keep it, mm.
2: which, um, uh, and our accountants at the time in 1958 at Cessnock couldn't balance their trust accounts and then they had a fire oh. so all of our records the tyrrell records went up in smoke huh. so there's a lot of stuff that and that uncle Dan dying it with it in his head that was we don't have a lot of records
0: mm-hmm. um, probably so a good and a bad thing <laughs> yeah yeah.
2: <laughs> So I'm a bit of a freak (laughs) about keeping those things now because back in 83, David Patterson and I were trying to do the book for 125 years and we ended up relying on, you know, old family members and uh, then we we did it for 150 years and uh, Pauline was involved in a lot of the research. I mean, she said to me, this original book is about 80% wrong. Hmm. But it was all the stories we were told by the old... And they did it in those generations. If something went wrong, it either ceased to exist, and the same with people, or they'd tell lies about it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. We got you know, an uncle that went from here to South Africa. We actually went to England for about four years and then he ended up in South Africa. <laughs> all sorts of funny stories.
1: Lost in the sands of uh, the mists of time.
2: Yeah.
0: And, and It's funny, and you and I have spoken about things that we do now for, for my kids mm-hmm. and for their kids. And these wines that we, we put away and, like,
1: back then it would wasn't... Sucked, didn't <laughs> I it? Just, we're just trying to basically get by, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, yeah.
2: In yeah, other well, Dad came back after the war. Mm. He went out into the cattle business because there wasn't enough income here to support him. Mm. You know, I had to support my grandfather and Uncle Dan and, and assorted as it had done through the Depression. Assorted members of the family that hit hard times somewhere else, and they came back here. Uh, Great Uncle Fred came back out of out of Central Queensland to here during the depression. My grandfather worked up there um, when he came back from the war.
0: Mm. And the yeah, the business would have been tiny, mm. and like you said, that's the Murray had to do. The, well, did the cattle because was no other work. Like oh, it's that that, that's it. Yeah, no, I talked to um. He's passed away now, but he was one of the great men of the Australian wine industry, Ed, Dr Edgar Reek, who was down in Canberra. And he was uh, very close with, with our family and, and particularly my grandfather. And In my sort of late teens, into my early 20s, we used to see Edgar a fair bit. And a couple of times he'd come up here and um, I think in the, in the early 90s and 80s he was a lot closer with the, the business and the family then. But uh, I remember asking, I asked Edgar one day, how long have you actually sort of been hanging around for? How long did you know... Did you, how how long were you mates with murray for And he just looked at me and he said i remember murray when he was just the bloody cattleman <laughs> <laughs> didn't know a thing about wine yeah.
2: <laughs>
0: but I, i'm pretty sure murray was uh figuring it out along the way he was pretty
2: bloody yeah.
1: good making yeah. oh
2: i think those those sort of days vintage and that they would have he would have been here mm-hmm. working but um I don't know that was that was probably the extent of it because I remember Saturday mornings was dispatch and sit out on the veranda out there which was where you walk out to where we have breakfast now and rolling the the up quarts the and the bottles up in newspaper, huh. packing them in wooden fruit boxes and hammering the top down and then they'd go on the back of the old ute and uh, if I was lucky I got the ride over to the Brankston railway station and back again or... Uh, got an ice cream and sat on the ute while Uncle Dan had a few at the railway hotel in in Brankston and apparently occasionally never got home. (laughs) But, uh, you know, that was it. That was... (laughs) And then in the early days of, was it, 61, I think, the 60, and uh, we had two wines for offer, a claret and a burgundy. And if you like the claret... They'd whip in here and they'd label up a dozen bottles of claret, you got that same wine. I was going to say, obviously, the same wine. <laughs> yeah, ask your aunt about that. It was one of Annie's jobs when she was young, was uh, labelling the claret and the burgundy.
1: So there was no LIP at that stage? No,
2: no, that, no, that didn't exist.
0: And, and part of the reason for today's getting a lot of these stories right, and I love um, one of the great things about Tyrrell's and the great thing about the wine industry is the the camaraderie that, that comes with that and, you know, particularly in that period where Tyrell's was um, expanding quickly is probably an understatement, mm-hmm. 80s into the 90s. There's a lot of young winemakers that have come through here and um, have gone on to, to, to be incredibly successful in their own businesses or with Absolutely. other companies and I just loved seeing all those guys and just getting all these stories. Every now and then you get a new one but they're just great. Like it would have been such a good time.
2: It was just run. Ross, uh, Ross Brown and I came up together in the wine industry and and, and a bloody good mates. And we both, oh, I don't know, we were together somewhere and somebody said, you know, what were the rules that you had in, in your early days and direction and that sort of stuff? And I said, the only business training I got was I was told to grow. Mm. Don't do anything else, just grow. Right. And Ross said, that's funny. That was exactly the same instruction I got. <laughs> and he said there was a tiger out there and we grabbed it by the tail and we all just ran. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, things like the... the um, Vet, not Vin Expo. Expo Vin we used to have, Robin Bradley put on. Norbert and Cindy. And, and the bloody things went for ten days. Christ. They started at ten and they finished at ten. Wow. So after four days, there was nobody behind the stand that was sober. <laughs> <laughs> and the poor old Germans. We used to give them a terrible time. Um, the Piroth mob. They were complained oh, yeah. about something and Yellumber always took a Cooper with them. So we got Hillsmith to line the, the Cooper up with the German stand. Uh, and he'd start hammering away but what they didn't know is he's put a microphone inside it. <laughs> so he couldn't hear himself thinking. <laughs> <laughs> at, at,
1: uh, Last
2: Saturday morning and it was always breakfast on the weekend in the in the Orlando stand. because Big Bob McLean. They had Paul Roger. So we'd oh, yeah. all go in there for a couple of glasses of pole to start the day. Thanks for coming. And um, Michael Hill Smith and John Peter Meyer I think turned up the whole heap of tiger prawns and fresh bread. So we've had wonderful breakfast, and then we're going to work out what to do with what's left of the prawns. Uh, Dave Berry from Lindemans and I um, put on a blue out the front. We're throwing punches and roll on the floor. as so all the Germans have come out of the pier-off stand, and uh, Hill Smith and Meyer have shoved the remainder of the prawns under the back of the German stand. <laughs> the only thing in there at three o'clock were a couple of cats.
1: <laughs> the poor bastards. <laughs> I wanna find out what it was like growing up here from both of you. Um, you obviously had different experiences, different timelines, but what 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 was it like to grow up here in the Hunter Valley? Not necessarily at Tyrrell's, but just in Percolban and then starting to dawn on you that you were growing up at Tyrrells and all of that sort of did, did you get a I, sense when you were kids? I, I reckon we'll have the
0: same answer, but um, different time periods. So Bruce would thinking probably the same thing. Bruce would probably say it was incredibly small compared to what it's today, yeah. and I would say exactly the same thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty small. Um, we lived down where Hope Estate is now. Mm-hmm. Um, coming home from the war, in New Guinea, um, my old man, my mad uncle, my mother's brother and a fellow called Neil Barrell who, who started Beneficial Finance. Um, and they'll come back from New Guinea. And it was two-up match, two-up game, uh, school, sorry, and the old man threw 23 heads in a row and there wasn't enough money left on the boat to back against him, And there was one asleep and two awake the whole time coming back to Sydney. Um, and that borders Vioka, which is... ...where Hope Estate is now. Okay. So that that money bought... ...that and my mother's engagement ring. Awesome. Uh, I remember she talked once about sitting on the bed... ...in the Metropole Hotel... ...throwing brand new £20 notes in the air... ...and just letting them fall. (laughs) Uh, It was a lot of... have been a lot of money. So we lived down there. It was pretty quiet. There was no bitumen roads. There was... ...we had a rotary exchange. Mm Mm-hmm. Party line. I remember my my mother had talked for a minute or two and then she'd say, I think you've heard enough, Mrs Burns, who was the postmistress. She would said you'd hear the click as she put the phone. (laughs) Uh, You know, I rode a horse across the paddocks to Rothbury Public School, which is the corner of Brankston Road and Wilderness Road. There's containers in there now. Uh, Maximum 23 children in one room with one teacher. Mm. Who needed to go at the end of the day quickly because he needed a drink, <laughs> um, um, you know. But when we replanted in the sixties on the Balkum across the road, I had to have a we- I had a week off school because we were short a person, mm-hmm. and uh, I drove the cart with the stakes on it up and down the road. So it was great, a lot better than being at school. Mm. So it was very quiet, and and when the old man was crook one weekend, I was about nine. My mother drove me up here at nine o'clock, picked me up at half past five, and I took 60 quid. So I did as a nine-year-old sell a door on my own because if I didn't, we didn't eat that week. Oh, things, wow. were, things were pretty tight. There wasn't a money around in those days. Um, and it was, it was very small and, and, um, and probably a bit ramshackled
1: in those days. So um, you didn't have any two-headed restaurants to out for dinner on Sunday night. It
2: was about the best thing you had, and that was Smithy's Pub in Down, (laughs) uh, where they all stayed. But there was wine tour, and that's really... uh, Dad's remembered for many things, but the most, probably the most important one for this region is the father of wine tourism. Mm. Because we'd had... They'd had a variety of merchants, and it just wasn't working. And so, you know, the first direct to consumer letters were sent out of here about 1960. I remember as a kid sitting at the kitchen table folding the envelopes and and um, you know licking them and putting the stamp on. Um, so you know we've been at that. That was that was changing. It was to bring just to bring people here mm-hmm. because the the major pub chains were tied up with Lindemans and Penfolds and, and a few of the merchants and. Um, We'd used old Doug Lamb for a while. That had moved around a fair bit uh, with that. Um, Old Doug went broke at the end of the 60s. No, no, it was well into the 70s. My sister worked there. Um, That would have been, yeah, 72, I think, Doug went up the chute. Um, But, yeah, we we had a few staff. Um, Everything was manual. Mm. Uh, Well, one of my jobs as a six-year-old was there was an old steam, old uh, diesel donkey engine that ran with a couple of big leather straps on it that went up and it ran the crusher up mm. in the roof. So as a five-year-old, I was, my job was to rub the rosin on the belt as it went past. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful for work, work health and safety. Um, and then, you know, as the 70s arrived and things took off, um, late 60s, you know, all of that started to change and that's when it was just... Go yeah for those very early days, it was. But Dad was someone drove up the hill, the old man would stop on the plow or the spray cart and come and serve him. That was that was it.
0: And and it's sort of, and my experience was a lot different. The business was probably triple the size it is now. Right when I was a kid, you know. It's so, um, but I remember uh, one of my first jobs was um. I remember when the Game Boy was coming out,
1: uh-huh.
0: and so as like an eight-year-old, you're thinking like, "We need one of these. Totally. This is so good." Double Dragon. And um, exactly. And and there was there was three of us, brother, sister. I was the youngest, and um, we had one. Mm. And uh, I remember at the time probably complaining because I was the youngest kid. <laughs> and I remember at Christmas when I was turning, when I just turned eight. Um, under the, cre- and I was a shocker for like presents and wrapping. And I'd, <laughs> I'd like open them, wrap them again, like I was terrible. And I um, had to peak, I had a hasn't changed. Yet. But uh, but uh, so I had these, what I thought was two AA batteries just wrapped. And I thought, oh yeah, Game Boy time, we're on here. This you know, I think, I think then that had the new bits come out, the attachments you could put on the Game Boy, you'd remember, it's little light, that's all the that mattered. Yeah, parts, exactly. Yep. And I open it. And it's two four ten shotgun shells, <laughs> and I think and then Bruce is like, "When we get back, you're going back to work." And uh, so we came back from Queensland, and I remember, um, yeah, as an eight year old with my four ten shotgun, we drive out to HVD,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is quite a big vineyard, and you just get dropped at one end of the creek, and we see in a couple of hours at, at sunrise every morning. <laughs> oh my God. But but early on, it was, um, you know, it's about you realise pretty quickly there's not protecting, but it's all about. <laughs> the grapes you know yeah. and still to this day that's all that matters we got the game boy in the end though. <laughs> i was gonna
1: say <laughs> jesus christ that's mean <laughs> And, and my, my,
2: wasn't allowed too many misses to that,
0: that. <laughs> and my cellador story i remember i think not as young as bruce but about 14 years old um working in there and there's a bunch of good-looking girls and i've gone feeling pretty confident straight in there i'll look after them it's all good it's all good um and pull out the tray of glasses to get the glasses out, the whole thing, like 30 glasses, smash on the floor. <laughs> Didn't go back for about three <laughs> years after that. Take your leave. Yeah. yeah, okay, Go back to my gun.
2: <laughs> but, you know, those days of Celador the uh, January long weekend in 71, we took $27,000. Now, that's a good long weekend now. Mm-hmm. And the average price for a bottle of wine wouldn't have been two dollars. No. Now we're just massive. The floors would be the the floors, the, the grounds here would be full of people barbecuing and picnic, which is picnic which is a wonderful thing of COVID. That's come back. Hmm. People are back having picnics I think, which is wonderful hmm. to see all that grass covered.
1: Used to come out and have picnics with my family out here. Yeah. When I was a kid. Yeah. And
0: I remember I um, it used to annoy Mum, but um one of the big memories of my childhood and I've got a photo of it somewhere um, is we'd leave school like during vintage and they'd just they'd just dump us at the, the front here where the receivable area was and right. we had the old crane and the chains on the bin and I got to do that. The button, the crane button. That's cool. And that's all that mattered as like a you know seven, eight, nine year old was getting to do that. That's cool. Yeah. But there's just people everywhere. Like it would fruit everywhere, stuff like it was Tyrells was big then, just yeah. long flat. You know, it's
2: all happening there. But it was also,
0: but such a small company at the same time. Yeah, and yeah, still yeah. is. Mm. That's right. Yeah, still
2: yeah. But you know, we and we had that way of handling fruit. That was the way you handle fruit. But also, there was really no machine harvesting. Mm. So we'd be picking semelon from Reg um, the Stevens, um, Doug Elliott, mm-hmm. Jack Leonard, HVD. You know, there would be six, seven, eight. Joe Lesnick 30, you to watch, three, yeah. Yeah, for, yeah. there'd be 8 or ten of them coming in, and and because uh, now we go in and we're right. We're gonna pick HVD, we pick it in two days, then we move to Belford and we pick it. But in those days, everyone had their own picking team, and so you know Reggie Drayton had picked for six, seven days, but so were the Elliot. So there'd be this queue of um, And then it happened every day. God. And you're trying to you got to keep those separate. Logistics. Two little two ton presses. But that wasn't that long
0: ago. I remember my first vintage in 2001, and you, you get the job out on the crusher for the first few years. I did that, and uh in the car park there, and there'd be 120, 130 ton days. But it'd be like 15 growers. It was just Ooh. a madhouse.
1: Just come truck
0: absolute rat house.
2: Yeah.
0: I think I did put like. 10 tonne of Chardonnay and a load of Stephen Semelon once and just never told anyone. But you wouldn't know. There was bloody bins going <laughs> everywhere. And
2: right. that was the other thing. It used to take two days at the end of vintage to get everybody so everyone got their own bins back.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so yeah.
2: someone had come in. Steve Drayton had come in, unload him. Neil Stevens had come in. He had to go back in a hurry and there were none of his bins. You take Steve's and then Steve would go with Neil Said, so bins everywhere. I remember going nicking Heck Trevena's one night. I t- didn't know. <laughs> um, it's like the keg system
1: in pubs these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can't you get keg back?
2: Yeah, well, that's having been in that business in the Blue Tongue days, mm. we found two hundred of our kegs um, at West End in South Australia. It's
1: a long way from. And home. the big
2: boys used to take our kegs to get us out of the. That's how they got you out of the game?
1: Mm.
0: And as so, a. And there's a lot of those staff that were that I work with today that were here when I was a kid. Yeah. And not many people get that opportunity. It's something I've always been really grateful of and yeah, um, hopefully good for them to see, yeah. you know,
1: the, the generations coming through. I think that's a testament to the culture perhaps that exists here. I know just my own personal experience whenever I've wanted to chat or needed to ask a question or anything like that, it's always like, yeah, wait, no worries, or jump on the phone or whatever, and, and uh, it's a very uh, welcoming and and uh, accommodating family.
0: And, and probably good for you. There's um, <laughs> like lots of sources of people. There's lots oh. of people that be, there you can get. Spinner, Richard, Pangili, Bruce, Chris, Jane. Who, there's lots of people. Um
2: yeah. Darren in the winery who, you know, was forty seven
0: mm-hmm.
2: on his thirtieth anniversary. of work at Terrell. He was. Yeah. Started yep. when he was seventeen.
0: Amazing bloke. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so uh, that's always just been the way the family's been. Yeah. Um, And I suppose it did... It had to be because, you know, if you're you're selling anything... ...you've actually got to be nice to people.
1: (laughs) Catch more flies with honey.
2: Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. So if you're you're friendly and give decent service and do all that stuff... ...people actually like to come back. Um, I don't know, I've always had a saying... Jason Becker, who worked here, we got him out of high school, um, to sort of for production and whatever, and some business skills, and it was really good. We picked well; he topped the Hunter Valley in business studies, and we're the part of the doers. As we put him through university, um, but yeah, you know, he was just—he he, learned. I remember he said when he left, and he got to a stage in his life where he needed to go on do something else. Um, ...he said, the one thing that I always remember being taught... ...is nothing's impossible, miracles take 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, If it's got to be done, you've got to find a way to do it. Get it done. Yeah. Uh, Of of
1: all the vineyard sites that you guys have access to... ...and there are some remarkable ones... um, ...one of my personal favourites, of course, is Short Flat... ...the unnamed vineyard. (laughs) The unsigned posted at least... Um, But Jono's, not a lot of people know about wine killer at the back. You're a huge fan, Bruce, of, of HVD, of course. Yeah. That's that's your...
2: My favourite set, HVD. It's favourite. Old Chardonnay block. I don't
1: think I know yours, Chris. Can cool. I have a couple?
0: Yeah, of course. No, I think it's, it's down there, short flat, I think. Mm. Sort of spoilt for choice down there, so you, you can... I think that old vine chardonnay block is pretty good. And I've always loved that contour Shiraz, which is a little block hidden in the not hidden, but it doesn't have a home. Like it goes into VAT nine every year, but it doesn't right. get the shining light that the others get. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's the best Shiraz we make. Yeah, right. Yeah. Waiting for Bruce to Don't say it so too, <laughs> <not> too quiet. <laughs> um, but I've always loved it. And we've got. Um, you know, so many amazing vineyards, quality wise, they're all on the same
1: level, but it's probably just what you prefer yourself. You know, are there and any? The, the down there is pretty good as well. well the sem's all right, the <laughs> sem's pretty good. Actually, that's a, that's a good uh, point. Uh, the VAT one in '94, I think, Decanter named it an icon wine. Well, it was the '94 vintage, vintage. Yep. yeah, rather, Vintage. uh, was named as an icon wine of the world.
2: Sorry, I'd forgotten that one.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, <he> hadn't, <laughs> I don't think so. What, what What is that like to get that letter or email or whatever it is to say, hey, this wine here is regarded as one of the best on the planet? So I'm going to lead him in here because I think uh,
0: a lot of the work that um, Bruce had done and his father probably started, but Bruce certainly the key driver of that, um, taking these wines to the world, putting the foot down, saying, hey, these are spectacular, they're world-class wines, some of the best wines in the world and so unique, I think it's starting to pay off. Mm-hmm. And, um, like, so much credit to Bruce and a few other of his contemporaries, but it's um, – you speak to international people now and we're allocating that one now. Mm. 20 years ago it was a different yeah, story. and
2: it's now That's now got to a stage where it's accepted. Mm. Yeah, I remember um, – what's his bloody name? at Sherry Lehman. Um, the old guy who owned it. And he threw me out in the early 80s. Firstly because no one would drink similar. It wasn't an acceptable table wine. But on part of that, I don't make wine in Australia. Hmm. Um,
0: there's the fam- a, there's, a there's the famous story of the retailer in San Francisco and Chuck Haywood who... Um, I'll, I'll make sure he listens to this but he refers to himself as the wine Yoda that's what his business card says but he talks about that famous retailer in San Francisco that had a stack of Mount Pleasant Elizabeth a huge floor stack and he had written on there please don't buy this you know, and the price because he wanted actually, it up for himself because he oh was a secret he, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, it was
2: actually in Sacramento yeah. up in Sacramento he used to come out here and judge uh, the National Wine Show we thought he was fantastic. Black, a great shop so
1: it was a it was a secret for a long while. Th- those that knew knew, and those that needed convincing, well, you know, give it enough time.
2: Yeah. Uh, and there was also look back in those days, um, and some difficult vintages in the fifties and sixties, early start, the seventies were.
1: That was a wet decade. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's
0: not many wines from Australia in the seventies that are good anywhere.
2: I um, had a 79
1: folly once and that was pretty flash, but that was at the end of the decade. Some good, good 79s around actually,
2: yeah. Yeah, bloody good year. Uh, and a big year, too. Mm. Um, it, um, so, so, you know, here having lost 58, 60 and 62 to and basically having no wine. So I remember 1960, it must have been New Year's Eve, um, as you drive up the hill here, there was nothing green. On those wines. It was just completely shredded. Wow. Um,
1: An entire year's worth of work gone in under ten minutes.
2: Yeah. And it's brutal. Yeah, it is. And so uh, Uncle Dan had died. There was probate, death duties, all that stuff. And and we couldn't afford to lose anything. So, you know, I always used to say as soon as the, the grapes turned... He'd pick hmm. because he just couldn't afford to lose anything ever again. so we had – and and the one thing on Simulon that will that's guided me and will stay with me for the rest of my life was 67, I think it was, 66 or 67. Down there mm-hmm. where we – the first row on the dirt floor in there which used to be the white casks were there, white ones, you know, Vat 1, Vat 3, all mm-hmm. of that were there. And it was Vat 1 um, and Dad had – was it – got it out of the barrel and shown it to Graeme Gregory, who was head of horticulture and and one of the great men of the the Australian wine industry, really, in in plant selection and all... And he was show judge, a great palate. And I remember he said, enough acid in that to take the bloody enamel off your teeth, Murray. Who's going to drink that? And it stayed with me. And there were these nine to ten and a bit alcohol semelons that were thin and green and hard as the hobs of Hell. Right. And, um, and so that's what I started to I had a lot of fights with my old man trying to do it, but we just gradually moved them up. And and those wines are sensational when they've got flavour. If they're thin and green when you make them, when they're 10 years old, they'll be thin and green. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, and if you uh,
0: go back through the... We, when we talk about this, often the best vintages of Semelon or the Tyrell Semelons or the Vat Vat ones specifically, were from those years where they were a bit riper. Uh And not a hot year per se, just the ones that were a bit riper. And I think the common misconception with Semelon is that they need to be super lean, super mean, and then you've got to leave them forever. Right. But I think the the best vintages uh, have drinkability in the Mm -hmm. firm, They smell They taste great in ferment. taste great straight after. Drinkable on
1: release. Drinkable fight, And they go forever. The best wines are all about balance. Do they – is it true that some of them get into that sort of awkward teenage phase where they become a little – is is that 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 a thing? I think screw caps kind of change that. Two
2: things have done that. One screw cap probably and the other one is that – and we're doing it purposely. We're picking a bit riper. Okay. And we're picking when the fruits – the analysis is nice. Yeah. But the flavour's got to be there. Sure. What happened before is that they'd be picked and you still see it, semelon – thing this year. There's one guy I keep saying to him, as soon as you think your semelon's ready to pick, go away for five days. Because <laughs> you pick it too early every year and it's always as green as grass and it should be a lot better.
0: It's the single hardest not the single hardest, it's arguably the the most important decision. The picking decision. When to pick oh
2: yeah. mm. no, uh, and number two is a long way behind
0: it. And for me just with our vineyards and you can't just go through like a wet vintage. You need to go through five. You mm-hmm. need to go through five, like all, all these drought ones. You need to know it. To, you need to do that multiple times to know those vineyards. And I think for me, I've sort of done maybe 20 vintages here, is maybe just in the last few years got a really good handle on certain blocks in certain mm-hmm. years and, and you need, you know, it's like the old Malcolm Gladwell, have you read Outliers? The ten thousand hour rule, um,
2: but, thousand you need, hours, but you yeah. need
0: to you need to know these things multiple times, multiple different types of vintages, and to me that's sort of only I reckon just starting to kick in.
2: Mm.
0: You know how much time you've got. You know you can leave it a day. You can have maybe three, maybe six. All that stuff.
2: And some blocks, yeah. some blocks will hold longer than others. So some blocks, okay, that's got to go and it's got to go now. Right. That one, be nice to pick it now, I've got a couple ahead of me. And you do it. I always try, or well, I've done I've always done it at vintage time to be thinking four days ahead.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Beyond that, you're only guessing.
0: There's a reason why we've got a whiteboard.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you can wall, change it. The war room, <laughs> yeah. I love it. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, but it's, you know, we'll have a couple of days, three days on the board, but then I've got in my mind where I'm going to go next. Because I've spent the time in each of the blocks and walked and tasted and walked and tasted, and you know,
1: that's one of the.
2: Which is why we probably don't test as early as some other people, because so much is testing if it's not going to be ready for ten days. It's fair enough. Yeah, if you only yeah. waste some grapes.
1: It's a f- it's a thing uh, I think about quite a lot is that input of time, and I've mentioned on the podcast probably a lot that, that inevitably if we ever get to a point where. Um, can be a bingo board made for the podcast. Time will be on there, but um, time is an input, as a fundamental input to literally anything we ever do. But particularly with wine, it's this unconscious input that you, Tyrells in particular, have a have a, um, a huge advantage with because of that history that you can draw from. Whereas if you were just starting and you you were two vintages in, three vintages in you can make a decent wine, no sweat, but do you make the best wine that comes from that particular site? Are you really getting to the to the fundamentals of what that site's doing and what it's saying and, and all that sort of stuff? And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, t- I think Terrells is one of those rare birds that, that can leverage that experience over time. But I reckon the, the,
0: the great thing about Terrells is everyone who works here, whether it's, you know, we spoke about, Darren in the cellar and Dave who have been there since the eighties or Spinner or Richard or Bruce, right? No one talks about, but like we don't sit around and talk about that O5 that one very often. And like how good it was. It's all about what you're going to do this year, what you're going to do next year. And then the second vintage is finished. We're talking about next year. Mm-hmm. What did we do wrong? What can we do better? Hey, maybe if we tweak that and if you make one little change, then you've got to make a change somewhere else. Mm. You know, you've got to counteract it and, and we certainly haven't made the best wine we're going to make. Yeah. No um, way. No, and, and just beginning. S-
2: Semillon is really about doing the least amount. Mm. I must a been saying once, my job's just, it's a shepherd.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I've just got to shepherd it through. Um, that's right. You're not doing anything to it. There's no, it's like Chardonnay, you can fiddle around and do all sorts of stuff. Mm. Semillon doesn't work. If you you don't pick it right, well, you've missed out. Mm. It's never going to be as great as it could have been.
0: And you know. That's right. Like sometimes you know before you picked it, you might have missed it, or you might have known, you know. Mm. Or when you get it and it's like, ah. And then like spin will always say, oh, there's always next (laughs) year. Yeah. And And you can't can't
1: necessarily replicate it. And you
0: can't get it right. There is
2: no, I don't, there are no two vintages the same. Mm. Say this year's a bit like 04. Yeah, it's a bit like O4, but it's not not 4 Different, different long-term weather conditions. Yeah, IFO to this one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the wines taste a bit like they did, but the conditions are never the same. And it's the the it can move from the technical flavour, all of those things that you want to do,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and suddenly logistics. Mm. You get your picking decisions almost mm-hmm. taken away from mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. because I was going around to Drayton's a couple of years after Trevor had died and, and I used to stick my head in at vintage time two or three times just to give old Max a bit of a stir up. But, um, but you know, just to have a yarn because he and Trevor used to talk mm-hmm. all the time and there was no one else really there to do that, I suppose. And so I used to go around and I'd have a yarn to Max and whatever. And uh, I remember he's walked out one Saturday morning, I pulled in, he got a bucket of juice. I want to go there, Max. You know, it's I said, Is it ripe? He said, Yes, yes, it's ripe. And he said, See, the seeds are black. I said, If you tasted it, what would I want to do that for? <laughs> <laughs> and we had this argument far from there. And he said, Well, all right, smart ass, you taste it. I'm not going to taste it I don't <laughs> like it. <laughs> like and, uh, he said, When would you pick it? I said, I'd pick it before Friday night. He said, Why would you do that? I said, it's going to rain Friday. I said, get out of here, you drinking <laughs> <cheeky> butt. <laughs> and, uh, and everyone has their own different way. That was Max's way. Yeah, he enough. brewed the seeds. Yep. And you miss it certainly in my generation, that um, when Phil Ryan was at McWilliams and Trevor was still alive, at vintage time, sometimes we'd talk three, four times a day. ...between us, I've got a problem with this, have you seen it? No. Trevor would say, yes, I've got that... ...and that's because we did this wrong earlier on. So uh, I I don't really have that anymore... Hmm. ...because most of my generation are gone. Hmm. You know, Scarb's about it. Um, So that's a little more difficult... ...where Chris has got, you know, Stewie Horden ...and, you know, we're very lucky... ...there's the group of Chris's generation. Yeah. ...in the district where we've got really, really competent people.
0: And there's also that, like, little half generation above. They'll hate to think they're old, but, um, you know, Tomo and Margs and... Sure. Yeah. Next generation. Next generation. The next the one is. after Half a generation. Bruce, yeah. <laughs> um, and they've always been great to to me... ...and the people sort of of my... ...what I'll call sort of my generation now... Um, and those guys worked at Tyrells. That's great. Exactly. And they yeah. love telling you all the, the bad things you're doing as well as the good <laughs> things you're doing, which, which, do which I've like always that. loved. I've always loved that. Yeah. But um, those guys are, are fantastic. And particularly these days with phones, you know, mm. everyone's talking all the time. Yeah. You know, if you've got an issue during vintage, whether it's um, vineyard-related or winery-related or anything, there's always someone to and talk to. And
2: also there's, within the area, the, the recognition of great wine. I was lucky. My sister... Lucky, we had Len Evans. And Evans, my sister ran the bottle shop at Len Evans Wines. That was my Sydney office, mm-hmm. um, and I was allowed to go to those Monday lunches. I was let in there with them all, and yeah, you, know, you sat next to old Rudy came on, and you you really learnt about those wines. And Chris's generations had Ian Riggs. Riggsy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Riggsy Riggs, learnt from Evans, and Riggsy's been fantastic at passing on that knowledge and. And the appreciation and the feeling, and I get it in some other areas, bigger areas of Australia, that there really isn't that great knowledge and great appreciation of really, really great wine.
0: Uh, you need to know. And I think that's one of the great things about the Let Evans tutorial, um, which I was lucky enough to do in 2012. And people who've done the tutorial always... Um, you talk to them about um, like how when you got back to work, don't your own wines just look shit out. <laughs> and every single person will say, I got back to work, tasted all our wines and went into a dark place. <laughs> but you need to know you need to know what the great wines of the world look like. You need to know how what they look like in the context of here mm-hmm. in the Hunter, what they look like in the context of Australia and you know, we might have made one of the best, you know, short flat Chardonnays ever. But you need to know in a global context, what it's like. And that's what sort of drives you, I think.
1: Well, yeah. now that you know what Raveno tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> I no, saw no, that post that that on was Instagram, was nice, it? Tasty, all right. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. very good. Some very generous people put that on.
2: <laughs> uh, back in my days, you could go to Len Evans' Wines and uh, and have a steak and a, and a bottle of Tash for ten bucks.
1: Thanks for coming. <laughs> Gee whiz. <laughs> I wanted to ask, um, uh, We following on from sort of one of your more favourite vineyards that, you, that yeah. you get to make wine from. But are there any sites around the Hunter or even, you know, around Australia, but uh, are there any particular sites that you'd just love to make a bottle of wine off?
2: I still think <laughs> I'd like to have a crack at Rose Hill. Yeah. But I'd want to run the vineyard for ten years.
1: Beforehand.
2: Beforehand. Right. Um, although I was surprised when I found out how little Rose Hill was bottled. Um, ...as Rose Hill. But you know, I have thought that was a beautiful bit of country. Maybe I'd still like to own Lakes Folly.
1: I was going to say still own because you used to. <laughs> what yeah. about outside of the Hunter?
2: Oh. Like to own a lot of land somewhere outside of the Hunter. It would probably have been Burgundy. Uh, <laughs> nice. Um... Yeah, we could sell this place and buy two rows. <laughs> <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know.
1: Um, what about you, Chris? I think of modern
2: time, probably that Margaret River area. Oh, yeah? Yeah.
1: Mm. yeah they've got,
2: they got a pretty good a over there, they? really and do. Yeah. And you know, they've got the almost perfect climate. It's pretty benign and beautiful. Yeah, fat and slack, though. Too easy.
1: You go for a surf though.
2: Yeah, it's true. As long as you can swim faster than the shark. True.
1: <laughs> Incentives.
2: Incentives.
1: <laughs> yeah. What about you, Chris? What's uh, uh, is there any particular? Just been, I'm just glad Bruce kind of went first. A couple. Yeah.
0: I've always really liked, and particularly over time the track record, I've always liked wines from that Saint Peter's vineyard. The Separate one, great Western. Mm-hmm. Some bloody good Shiraz from there, um, and.
1: Yeah, that's a good spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there any in the Hunter that you've got your eye on? You probably don't want to broadcast that, perhaps. Um, here. Or mm. well, you
0: set? Oh, I mean, so you've got some of I've the. Been p- off and and they are having some um some ownership changes currently, but I've been talking to Sparksy a little bit about um, and we never got around to it. But they have a vineyard there mm. that was a hundred this year. And so did we. One of their old hill blocks, 1921, and our NVC. Oh, yeah. So we were talking about maybe do we do a little swap some fruit or swap some wine or something, but that, that would be interesting. But one of those other great sites, one of yeah. the other 100-year-old blocks would be pretty cool. No yeah. doubt, no doubt. Maybe Cabernet and Malbec from Wenderee.
1: That's one of the wines I buy every year without fail. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Now, I was walking. Yeah, I was walking with Chris a couple of weeks ago, uh, in, ...out in the cellar there. Tell me a story about you, Bruce, in France at a dinner. Uh, in, uh, I'm going to say, uh, Bordeaux. Was this the... was
2: was, yeah. And M- Mouton Rothschild.
1: Right. And they asked you about...
2: Well, where no, you it was th- not so much they. Um, it was a conference for our UK distributors... ...who were part owned by Mouton... And the first night we have the big dinner, second night, in the Grand, you know, looking through the glass down the Grand Chez, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. And uh, I found out, thankfully, before the dinner, I'm sitting next to Philippine, the Baroness. So one is sitting here in one's blue suit and white shirt and dark tie, being terribly polite. And I remember, and, and you, it's not a, not a winery, it's a bloody museum. Wonderful, wonderful place. And uh, and she said, and what's your winery constructed of? And I immediately think, I cannot say. Poles cut out of the scrub and galvanised iron. So I said, we only ever use um, natural local building materials, Baroness. <laughs> <laughs> She you said, know, I can't wait to see it. And I'm thinking, no, I don't think so. It's probably
0: thinking of <laughs> those beautiful stonework.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Sandstone. Rusty tin and, and ironbark poles. It's a floor. wire
1: holding it together, yeah. Yeah. Well, that red dirt yeah. floor's seen a few things.
2: Yeah, it has. It's seen, a, seen its fish here. Totally
0: haunted down there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: Tom, I always reckon Uncle Dan's ghost used to follow him around on night shift. I because he was drunk, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> But he's not the only one who's said that, that there's a presence in that winery. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. It's a bit like Chris's house. It's a bit like that. It's got... The house has always had a a good feel about it.
1: That's cool.
2: It's a place you want to go to. Particularly
0: after the extension. Yes. (laughs) A little bit bigger now. Yeah.
2: I'm sure my grandfathers... My grandparents still wander around there at night.
1: I've got uh, a couple of quick-fire questions we usually end the, mm. the the podcast on and I want both of you to answer um, separately, of course. Um, so if you're ready, who wants to go first? Maybe Chris. What do you least love about wine? The notion that
0: bigger wineries can't make great wine. Mm-hmm. Massive chip on my shoulder about that. The fact that... Uh, if it's not tiny,
1: then it can't be good. If it's not boutique and indie and uh, the cellar door staff have long beards and so on. It's no, not so much no.
0: that. Um, I just think, yeah, there's always been a bit of a... If you're a big company, and Tyrells is probably the biggest company in the Hunter, but mm. they're not
1: good. They're just big. Makes my blood boil. It's fair enough, to be fair, yeah. 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 Um, well, you, you got big because of a reason, I guess, you know, and at one point you were small and uh, I don't know. Yeah, fair enough. Bruce, what do you least love about wine?
2: That's, uh, that's probably close to it. One of the things I least love about the wine industry is that. Uh. And uh, it really does, that does, you know, you look at probably who's the great quality winemaker in Australia, it's probably our biggest winery, mm-hmm. Ben Falls. But there's the so point.
0: many great wines. Yeah. Like, I don't give a shit what size you are. Like, you know, you look at tiny wineries like Cloudburst, Wenderee, right. mm. Geoconda.
2: If you're making a and decision big is based is on
1: size, though, I mean, gee, you're yeah. restricting yourself to a lot of quality gear.
2: And Well, yeah. the other, th- other part is that I don't like is bad wine. is thin, green wine that's purported to be something that it isn't. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and a lot of the cold climate areas where, and I saw one yesterday, where well, there was, the wine was just flavourless and green All right. because the grapes never got ripe. And that area, because it's cold, being purported to be a great area. When and I remember saying to Halliday years ago, "Bring out your ten-year-old Yarra Valley Chardonnays and we'll line them up against ours, and we'll see which ones have stood the test of time. Because if it only lives for three or four years, it's just a commercial wine." If it won't live for 15 to 20 or more years. They're the great wines. Ageability. Ageability. Mm. And I kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. And then Evans punched me from the other side and said, Will you shut up before Halliday explodes?
0: But <laughs> <laughs> there are many wines made by small, medium, and big wineries that are amazing and that are crap.
1: That's Absolutely. Just, just do what you've got to do. Mm hmm. Well, conversely, what do you most love about wine, Chris? The people. People. Yep.
0: Whether it's uh, here at Tyrrells or here in the Hunter, the camaraderie of the wine industry is amazing. And we've all got mates from school or whatever that work in, whether it's finance or building or... Mm-hmm. And you can't tell other people your you trade secrets, for a term, your tricks. And, you know, everyone does that in the wine industry. You've got an issue, how do you do that? Everyone talks, yeah, it's the people. It's the best bit. Bruce.
2: I think for me it's the fact that that great wines haunt you. You never you can give me a glass, you can give me fifty-four Richard in a rusty bucket, and I'll pick it. That wine, sixty-two Tache, there are a few of them, and they haunt you. You never lose the flavor, the aroma, the the um, the character, the occasion. Yeah, that, that was a better answer done. than
0: mine. <laughs> it's pretty bloody great thing wine, isn't it? It it's is. Why are all here? It's That's just pretty much the our best. Our here.
2: Yeah. When you open that great bottle, and wow, yeah, how good would yeah. that have been if I'd have left it another five years? <laughs> <laughs> Opportunity cost. Opportunity cost. Yeah.
1: What's one word to describe Bruce? The 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 thing that you do. Mm-hmm. Thing that I do? Yeah, what's one way to describe what you do on a day-to-day basis?
2: These days bugger all. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I suppose I'm entrusted with moving it through to Chris and to to Henry and Eddie. Mm -hmm. That's the most important thing to me. ...is that it does remain and it goes through. Nothing, nothing beats that. Is it something you ne-
1: you have to consciously do to instil a sense of reverence... ...or is it just through your actions and the way that you go about things? Uh, I
2: think it's probably the latter. Yeah. You can't tell people what they have to believe in. No. They've got to learn it and become part of it and... and uh, ...you know, and in some families and businesses, you get to a generation and, and it's a digression. In the early 70, mid-70s Ross Brown and I both got elected to what's now the wine grape growers, safe, the Federal Council of the mm-hmm. Wine Industry. Because my old man's Murray Bruce is, is I'm Murray Bruce Tyrrell mm-hmm. and Ross is John Ross Brown. <laughs> So the whole industry thought they'd vote for our fathers. <laughs> and we sat around the room with... ..where basically everyone in the room's name was the same as their companies. And I watched the Sepples. I watched the Gramps. Colin Gramp and, and Carl, Sepple, um, realised that they'd got to a stage where there were either too many in the next generation and they couldn't agree... Or that there was no one in the next generation that really wanted to carry it on, and they mm. were both smart enough to see that and to get out at the right time. Um, uh, and, and I think that's that's really important. I've seen so many people mm. that have worked all their lives in a family business because they were supposed to, and they hated every minute of it, and they're bitter old people. Mm. You don't want that. No. Don't push that onto anyone.
1: What's well, the question again? <laughs> One word to describe. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> no. Um. Not sure. We
0: should have. Uh, we should have done that about each other. Go on then. <laughs> <laughs> I would have said about Bruce uh, tenacious. Tenacious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, i Can I? I'd like to say busy, but we're all busy these days, aren't we? Productive it's over busy. Produ- yeah, it's um. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you can be
1: busy and do nothing. I can't abide the word busy. Yeah, I don't know. People ask you what you what. Are you, oh, busy. It's like okay, you're achieving ever,
2: anything. You ever want down. anything done, give it to someone who's truly busy, and they'll get it. The ones who tell you they're busy, they'll never get it. Done. No, they ain't doing nothing.
0: I'm a, I don't know. Maybe curious. Curious. Yeah, because in a place like this, you can't just be happy with what Bruce has done and and murray and and dan and that before him um you've got to look back and you've got to look forward Mm. and you've got to look right now and that's kind of where i live in you know how do we make it better
1: pushing that progression
0: yeah but so they've got to take the good things there's been so many great things that have happened and a lot of the stuff we do today is stuff that we did in the 40s and 50s and 60s but maybe stopped doing for a while and yeah that's curious
2: the other thing is you get to a stage in your life where you see what you want to do hmm. and and you go out and do it and then you get that's for me during covid has changed my life because I've suddenly realized for the first time that I'm not 25 anymore and that the things that need to be done going forward are not mine they're Chris's
1: hmm.
2: and in 25 years time 30 years' time, it'll probably be Henry and Ed's time to do it. Yeah. And trying to trying to work out when it is time to back off a bit, that's that's pretty difficult. My man never did it. He was yelling at people the day after he died. <laughs> um, and he just couldn't let go. Yeah. But it's not a matter of retiring and going sitting on the fence. You know, I'll retire two weeks after I die. Right. But the general direction... I see. My spot now is to give advice. Yep. Going
0: from being a player to a coach. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's like trendy corporate speak, isn't it? That's it. it.
2: Yeah. Um, Actually, preferred to coach and play. <laughs> in the end.
0: There you go. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, and particularly, she, she's not here today. But my sister Jane is a you know a really big part of this business, and she's always worked in um in the sales and sales side of thing and. Um, yeah, you know, spreading that word mm. in the hunt. I think between the three of us, we're all incredibly focused about pushing forward quality, pushing forward quality, all that stuff.
2: And the change in the business is great description of the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Is last week I did a function with um, people we sponsor and that's with Bell Shakespeare. Oh, cool. 35 years ago... ...the function would have been at Parramatta or uh, South Sydney Rugby League Club. (laughs) So (laughs) target market's changed a bit.
1: That's classy. Batman, Superman or Spider-Man? What's your favourite superhero? Not Superman. No, Batman. 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 Mm. Nice. Think of a favourite album or a song, piece of music, something like that. What is it and uh, what do you love most about it?
2: Easy high tide and green grass. The original Rolling Stones. Music. Okay.
0: slowly forcing my kids who are now five and nearly three just to listen to music that i like listening to
1: i do that i've done that from day dot i refuse to put the wiggles on um (laughs) so
0: the other day um we were in the car driving around and i had on um just put in acdc back in black that's not one of my favorite albums ever but it's just a ripper right yeah and uh, and they love that that first little minute of Hell's Bells. Oh. It's like the best start to a song ever, right? And they love it. Soundtrack's getting a good run as well. Is it? Yeah.
2: And interesting, when the, when the Botanic Gardens in Sydney a year or two ago got rid of the fruit bats that were destroying them, mm-hmm. they got it down to flashing strobe lights and loud music and they refined the music down to ACDC. No way. And that big boom in the background, yeah, that chased the, the fruit bats away. Flying foxes or whatever they got.
1: There's a nice little bit of provenance in that. Yeah. It? Yeah. If uh, either of you were ever in a position to recreate the T-Rex, would you do it? I'm
0: deep into dinosaurs at the moment now because of the kids. Yeah. Um, pretty short arms,
1: didn't he, mm. the T-Rex? Not that practical. No, but clearly there was a reason, evolutionarily speaking... That didn't need them. ...wasn't the required. Arms. Yeah. You're the second guest that's mentioned the arms recently. Yeah, yeah. big yeah. arms. Uh, what, what's the... um? Deep pockets, short arms. Well, I've got a mate says...
0: I've
2: got relations like that.
0: <laughs> short arms, big hearts. <laughs> <laughs> nah, he's right. Leave it. He did a good job, didn't he? It's, I think yeah.
2: Um Yeah. There are no T-Rexes now because they became extinct because there was no place for them in the, uh, the world in which they were living at the end. Uh, so things evolve, things change. If you live in the past, you die in the past. If you're not... It was actually Chris said it some years ago. It's half an eye behind you and an eye and a half in front and half an eye behind you is to make sure you don't do the same dumb things again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, continuing to do the same thing and expecting a, a different result, that's not going to happen. No, That's why the T-Rex went.
0: I've oh. always been a Triceratops guy.
1: Yeah, okay. I like Stegosaurus. Also good. If, if I, uh, yeah. I had to choose.
2: Well, if you look at crocodiles, you know, they haven't changed. True <laughs> enough. Yeah. Perfect killing machine.
1: I think most people know the answer to this, but, you know, where can people find out more about Tyrrells and... um, Bruce, do you have an Instagram? He does. Personally. (laughs) Gets hacked all the time.
2: (laughs) Nah. (laughs) Um, I'm not a great player in social media. If I want to give information to someone, I'll ring them and tell them.
0: I don't know when Bruce has been hacked or not, because every now and then you'll be looking on Facebook and it'll be like... um, Daniel Honan's birthday and it'll be like a thing from Bruce. <laughs> Happy birthday, Daniel. Did you get hacked again? He's like, no, 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 it's his no, birthday. No, 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 no. No, <laughs> um, no we,
2: I, d- I would look at it once every fortnight or three weeks when i got nothing better to do. Yeah, right.
0: Um, where do you find Tyrell's,
1: all the, the usual things these days? Yeah.
2: Websites, Website.
0: Instagrams,
1: Facebooks. Yep, okay. Yep. Gents, that was a stellar conversation. I had a huge privilege and, and ball... Um, being a part of it. So thank you so much for your time. I appreciate both of you. It was really,
0: really, really good. Thanks, buddy.
1: All right. Episode 23 done in the bag. What did you think? Did you enjoy it? Did you gain any knowledge, any insight? Some of Bruce's anecdotes are hilarious, insightful, brilliant. And I feel so privileged to be able to speak with both him and Chris about their life in wine let me know what you thought leave a comment if you're using apple podcasts or on soundcloud otherwise you can tweet me on twitter or tag me on instagram at fermenting place or simply say hello give me a guest suggestion send me an email hello at fermentingplace.com okay that's enough from me for now take care out there but don't forget to eat drink and be merry and i'll speak with you next time on the fermenting place podcast Oh,